morning. When um, I used to sit on that side of the uh, lectern, I would always look forward to um, the talk because it was, you know, anything that was a diversion <laughs> was welcome. You know, sometimes it was entertaining, sometimes it was boring. I didn't care. <laughs> as long as I could stop, you know, sitting and to something else. <laughs> so, uh, so this is the second day of our sit, and um, usually for most people, each day is, has certain kind of characteristics. And um, for the second day, usually, you know, the body after the first day um, realizes kind of that it's going to be doing this and it's not really used to it. So there are kind of, it's achy and the back really doesn't have the habit of, you know, holding us up straight. and. The knees are achy, and it's not comfortable. And the, partly it's not comfortable because the mind, for, for most people, is still pretty active. So there's not a kind of um, settling in of the mind. And when the, when, until the mind is really settled in and given up, um, the body, all the aches and pains of the body are... Um, prominent, I guess you can say, but once the mind settles down, there's a wider acceptance of the body just the way it is, and whatever aches and pains there are, are uh, easier to include in awareness. So for most people on the second day, that hasn't happened yet, and so today may very well be or continue to be kind of achy and uncomfortable physically. So I encourage you to be careful, you know, know in the same way that we encourage you to be balanced in mind, making effort but not too much and not too loose, in that same um, in that same, um, what's the word, with that same attitude, um, approach the body. So. If you're too lax with the body, then straighten up a little bit. But if you're too loose, if you're too loose with the body, straighten up. If you're too tight, relax and pay really close attention to your body telling you what to help you with that. So, for example, if there's an itch, you know, don't scratch it. You know, if there are little adjustments and twitchings and things like that, don't follow the mind's tendency to also, you know, twitch in that same way, to sit still. 
But if the pain is sharp pain or something that feels, um, you know, keeps happening consistent way, then please pay attention to that and don't sit that way. You know, adjust your posture so that you're not in that kind of pain and that you don't hurt yourself. I remember a long time ago when um, we first started, or soon after we first started, anyway, San Francisco Zen Center, it was a very macho uh, atmosphere. And people would sit cross-legged, even if they, you know, even if their legs were really tight and their hips were totally closed, they would force their legs into this position of, you know, full lotus, and they would sit there. Um, I don't know how they did it, actually, to tell the truth. Luckily, I was never able to do that. <laughs> but some of these guys really hurt themselves. You know? And, you know, that attitude came over from Japan because in some way I think it was um, the people, young men mostly go to um, Eiheiji and these other monasteries. And they're young, you know, they're in their 18s and early 20s and so on. And, and anyway, Japanese culture tends, I think, toward that kind of, um, you know, samurai sort of um, her- heroics. is the word that came to mind. And so um, they had these, you know, they, they went around with a kiyosaku and, you know, And that's what came over to us, except that, interestingly enough, the people who brought, like Suzuki Roshi and, in particular, um, Narasaki Eka Roshi, they were so wise, so deeply wise, and they, were, they understood not too long that that was that culture that they were going to bring over and, in, in some way, you know, impose on us. Um, really wasn't appropriate, and Suzuki Roshi um, loosened that pretty quickly, pretty soon. But still, some of the guys, you know, wanted to be Zen students, and for them, Zen students were sitting meant sitting cross-legged and looked like a Zen student. It's just like my son. I have a foster son, you know. And he's, always, he's very smart, and he always wanted to go to school, and he wanted to be a lawyer at some point. And so um, he thought kind of sweetly. You know, he, had, he was totally unprepared. He left school when he was 14. <laughs> so he had no skills, you know. But he thought if he just carried books and walked across the campus, he'd be a student. He was very sweet. But of course, he was not a student, and sitting cross-legged in this kind of intense way is not being a Zen student. So please be attuned to what your body is telling you. And if it's too slumpy, sit up straight to help the mind settle. And if it's too rigid, please relax. And I just wanted to mention something about concentration that somebody reminded me, that sometimes strong concentration is used to suppress emotions. So that's another thing you should be aware of, that you do want to be concentrated. You want to be concentrated. You need energy. 
there needs to be energy there in your sitting, but not so much energy that it's actually suppressing uh, and, you know, emotions, which are energies. You need to allow that to come up and see what you need to deal with. And so I wanted to mention a good way to widen that kind of concentration, closed concentration, is to use the senses. You know, listening, using listening is a wonderful way to allow the mind be its wideness, which what it is. But you can also use smell and touch and the breath. It's also effective. Staying in the body. It helps you stay in the body with a wide kind of alert but gentle awareness. And I just want to review with you because today, second day, is also a day of a lot of, could be a lot of emotions and thoughts, is that if you have just sensation as emotion and you let it come and go, you watch, there's no problem. If you have sensations and emotion and emotional energy connected with thought, but you're watching, there's still no problem. There's still practice happening. But if there's sensations and energy, emotions and thought, and then you reify that, you believe that thought, then you're caught. and bound, you know. So please um, pay attention to that difference. And you could look, we just put a sign up in the bathroom, Joko Beck's four uh, phrases, which are wonderful. It's kind of the practice in a nutshell. Caught in a self-centered dream only suffering, holding to thought, exactly the dream, this moment, just as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. So it's in the bathroom. So... I put it in the bathroom because I don't want there to be any place (laughs) that you're not practicing. (laughs) Anyway. So last time we talked about the past and how the past was in the present. So I was wondering now if you've noticed that in your sitting. So I'm sure that much of What's happening when you're sitting is just this rehashing of the past. So you might, you know, notice. What does that feel like? What does having thoughts of the past feel like? Notice if you're reliving the past. See if it's conditioning the present and the future. 
Do they have a, do they come with a feeling tone? And we've been talking about time, so, you know, is time real in the sense that is it a thing or is it an idea? If it's, if it's an idea, then why do we give it so much power? Why can't we just leave, you know, thoughts of the past as thought and not bring it forward as the reality, truth? Of the present moment, it's just a thought in the in the present. Past is not is not uh, doesn't have to uh, condition the present, even though it is here. Two. So. Um, we're now in section seven from Uji, and Dogen is encouraging us again to see that time does not flow. He's trying to take us away from this idea that we talked about a long time ago, time as Newtonian time, being a thing separate from us in the background, like a stage on which everything happens separate from us. And then in this next paragraph, he, he mentions how through activity time we're all linked as one event. He has another fascicle in, in uh, the Shobogenzo called um, Zenki. And the title, it means um, total dynamic working. As a matter of fact, it's Reb's name, right? Tension Zenki. Yeah, Suzuki Roshi called um, Reb this sense of total dy- dynamic wholeness that is this event. And then at the end of this paragraph, he says that um, because all moments are being time, and that is what we are, personally, he's not talking about something theoretically, he's talking about it personally for each one of us. So here is um, Moon in a Dewdrop. Do not think that time merely flies away. Do not see flying away as the only function of time. If time merely flies away, you would be separated from time. The reason that you do not clearly understand the time being is that you think of time only as passing. In essence, all things in the entire world are linked with one another as moments. Because all moments are the being time, they are your being, a time being. You're beginning to understand this. I don't even have to interpret. Here's another one. This is Nichijima. We should not understand only that time flies. We should not learn that flying is the only ability of time. If we just left time to fly away, some gaps in it might appear. Those who fail to experience and to hear the truth of existence time do so because they understand time only as having passed. To grasp the pivot and express it 
at the same time is individual moments of time. Because time is existence time, it is my existence time. And here's Norman's uh, translation. When Norman translates it, he, you know, he really widens it. He, he's, he's bringing the understanding forward. He's not just translating the words. So I think it's really good. Don't think time passes. Don't see time passing as the only way time goes. If time only passed, there would be a gap. You would be here and time would be over there. But as you are time and time is you and you are here, time has not passed at all. To think of time as only passing is to misunderstand yourself, to construct a gap between yourself and yourself. So whether they exist in the same moment or in many different moments, all things in the world are linked to one another intimately. Whether they are the same moment or different moments, all moments are just for the time being. And it must be your time being because you are time. So in thinking about this yesterday, I had this fun, fun leap of uh, leap, not of anything, just leap. My mind leapt. And it leapt to physics, because um, now this may be totally incorrect, and I may be totally misunderstanding physics, <laughs> which is probably likely. But this is the greatest thing. There's this thing called entanglement in physics. Do we have any physicists here? Because you can explain it, or, or I can explain it, and then I won't worry that you know I'm explaining it incorrectly. <laughs> David's not here. Huh? Too bad. Anyway, this entanglement thing is really neat, and um, I tried to, I looked it up online, and I tried to understand it in terms of physics, and I didn't quite understand it that way, but I did understand the simplicity of it, which is, now this is really, it's really, it's really, I mean, it's mind-blowing, really. There are two particles become entangled, and they act together as one system, as one object. It's kind of like a seesaw. So if one part, let's say particle, if one particle goes down, the other particle goes up. Okay? So if the other particle goes down, the other particle goes up. And I, mostly they explain it in terms of spinning. So if one particle is spinning this way, the other particle will spin the other way. So that's not too difficult to understand. Two particles, the same system, relating to each other, you know, making one event. But here's the really, here's the really interesting part of it. The first thing is they don't send messages back and forth to each other. That's the first thing that's kind of interesting. And then the second thing that's interesting is one particle can be somewhere around the Earth, and the other particle can be anywhere else, like millions and millions and millions of miles away, and they still do this. 
they're entangled. <laughs> Einstein didn't like this idea, <laughs> and he spent a really long time trying to disprove it. Einstein called it, he called entanglement spooky action at a dissidence. And he didn't believe it, but this other guy, John Bell, proved with his theorem that entanglement is real and it actually happens to tiny particles. We are all one, really interconnected, interpenetrated event. And in Buddhism we say, we don't know anything about physics, and probably this has nothing to do with our idea, but... (laughs) But it's fun for Buddhists to kind of imagine that physics now has something to do with Buddhism, you know. Probably some of it's maybe a little bit right, but I don't really know. But it's fun to think that way anyway. But in Buddhism we do say, like, you know, if you stand up here in the United States, you know, a butterfly lands on a flower in China. That's been a a, um, very common... um, you know, phrase, sentence in Buddhism for a very long time. So Buddhism has had this sense, probably from Huayan, right? Huayan, right? The net of Indra and stuff. Everything connected. You know, you you tap the net of Indra over here, right? And then the web, right? The web moves over there, right? We have this sense, that kind of inter-entanglement, if I could use the word entanglement. But isn't that wild? They don't know how it happens, but it's true. So it's one system, and we are both. You know, we are completely independent and unique, and yet we are only this one system. So both are true all the time. We're both. So what Dogen is saying here is because we are, we are absolutely intimate and connected with everything. And at the end, it's personal. He says at the end of this paragraph, it's really personal to each of us. So it has to do with how we live. You know, do we live, as I've said before, numerous times this time I'm here, do we live only as an individual? Is that our only consciousness? Or do we also live as the whole? Are we aware and conscious of the whole? I think I've told you this before. I used to, when I was young, um, I I, uh, was in a relationship. I had a lover who was a Native American, and it was very, very interesting to me being with him. He was, it was humbling in this respect, in in this respect, because he was always, he never didn't feel his connection with the earth, ever. And he, so I'll tell you a story. So one day, one evening, um, I wanted to, it was the beginning of our relationship, and I wanted to a special evening. And it was this Shabbat, and I invited him over for um, Sabbath dinner, and I bought a very special wine. It's very expensive. And um, so the dinner was happening, even when it was happening, it was time to open the wine, and I handed him the bottle. And I asked him to open it and pour two glasses of wine, which he did. And then he, 
I can still feel it now. I was so shocked. Then he got up from the table, and I didn't, I didn't understand what he was doing. He got up from the table. He walked to the front of the house. We were living in the country. He walked to the front of the house, opened the door, walked outside on the porch, and he poured <laughs> this very expensive <laughs> glass of wine onto the earth. I thought, what well, he did, that's, that's what he thought he was doing. What I thought he was doing, I didn't know what he was doing. I thought he was throwing away this, you know, wine. And I couldn't understand why, what he was doing. So I asked him when he came back, <laughs> what was that about? And he said, very simply, he said, the first and the best is returned to the earth. The first and the best is returned to the earth. And he did that every time we ate. It affected me profoundly. Because it it was so much part of... It was him. It wasn't even part of him. It was who he was. This, This sense of this deep appreciation and gratitude and sense of the livingness of life of, of all with all beings all the time it's really neat it taught me a lot but in that way and in a lot of ways actually I think it's hard for each of us, actually, to see what's happening with the earth. It's very difficult. Um, and sometimes, you know, we, it's easier to forget it. It's easier to be busy with our lives, and we're so removed from how we get our food, and even removed from the sky. I mean, how many times in do you actually even are able to see the sky in New York? You know, the light of the city prevents us from really seeing the incredible beauty of the night sky. I remember coming back from... um, I grew up in... um, I was born here, you know, in the Bronx. But I grew up mostly in Southern California in the early 50s. We, my family, uh, we moved there in 50, late 51, 52. And at the time, Los Angeles was still perfect. You know, it was paradise. And um, then I left for a while and um, I remember very distinctly when I came back from Africa, where things are still, or it was then, I lived in Africa in the mid-80s. In Africa, there's still, you can't miss the earth. I mean, it's just dominant. It was then, I think. I don't know what it's like now, but... So I, that, that was infused back in me as it was when I was young. And I, can't, I can hardly talk about it. <laughs> I feel so bad about it. 
And um, I came back to uh, Los Angeles. My brother picked me up from the airport, and we were going to go out to um, this place where we grew up. And on the way, everything that used to be, used to breathe, you know, was covered over with cement. And, you know, I'm as at fault as anybody. You know, I fly back and forth all the time. It's using tremendous amount of energy. You know, I don't know really that I even do enough. You know, I'm really aware of water because I grew up in the West, but... And... uh you know, I, I'm not so sure that I can eat tuna fish much anymore, you know, because the oceans are overfished. And much of what fish need to live is being destroyed. Anyway, I think the the um, statistic is something like human beings are using six planets, you know, the resources for six planets. We need six planets to live the way we're living. We only have one. (laughs) So I was looking at Native American uh, things about this on the internet, and I found a few I thought I'd read to you. This is from a modern Native American woman. (laughs) Quote, but it's the connectedness that was conveyed through this experience. We were driving along looking at how beautiful everything was and how awesome everything was. And all of a sudden we came across a clear-cut area, you know. And it's like I could almost feel like a wound or something. Like if I had a wound on me, and it was like it hurt. I don't know if you've ever had a cut, but you can, you know. You're all too aware that it's there. And I got real sad, kind of choked up a little bit about it. And when I got home, I was talking to my foster son about it, and he said, yeah, he'd felt the same way, you know. And you feel that connectedness with the earth, and it makes you... You know, it's good because it makes you more aware of what you can do, you know. And I think this is a very famous one. Treat the earth well. It was not given to you by your parents. It was loaned to you by your children. We do not inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. And here's one from uh, Massasoit. You remember in the fall... I talked about Massasoit. He was the chief uh, who um, befriended the pilgrims. Maybe unfortunately, certainly for him, that was unfortunate. And for all the Native Americans, we basically, you know, it was genocide. The saddest thing is, what would it have been like, you know, if if we met them really as equals and they could have taught us how they felt about the earth. You know, we could have taught them 
technology or something. Anyway. What is this you call property? It cannot be the earth, for the land is our mother, nourishing all her children, beasts, birds, fish, and all people, the woods, the streams. Everything on it belongs to everybody and is for the use of all. How can one man say it belongs only to him? (laughs) And then this last one. It's interesting, you know, Massasoit was the first meeting of Native, Native Americans with white people, European people. And this is one of the last ones. Luther Standing Bear. A Sioux. They made us many promises, more than I can remember, but they never kept but one. They promised to take our land, and they took it. It was not hard to see that the white people coveted every inch of land on which we lived. Greed. Humans wanted the last bit of ground which supported Indian feet. It was land. It has ever been land for which the white man person oppresses the Indian and to gain possession of which they commit many crimes. Treaties that have been made are vain attempts to save a little of the fatherland. Treaties holy to us by the smoke of the pipe, but nothing is holy to the white person. Little by little, with greed and cruelty unsurpassed by the animal, they have taken all. The loaf is gone, and now the white person wants the crumbs. So we as a species, I hope, you know, reconnect with our, the truth of our life sooner than later. And all of us here are doing that. All of us here are reconnecting with the truth of who we are in the deepest possible way. That is our work here. That's what we're doing. At first, you know, it looks emotional and psychological and so on and so forth, but that's just the start. Really what we're doing is finding our home in this wholeness that we live. We want to live not just from a sense of separation and self, but from a place of connectedness. And it's a choice. You know, we either feed the part of us, this is the wolf part, we either feed the part of us that's separate and greedy and selfish and angry and lost and frightened, or we feed the part of us that is whole, peaceful, gentle, kind, compassionate. And whichever one we feed is the one that will grow. So that 
really is what we're doing. You know? So please, you know, continue doing this work. It's important, not just for ourselves, each individually, for our own freedom and awakening. It's important because everything needs us to live from a place of wholeness rather from a place of fear. And Dogen is pointing us there. Your sitting is pointing you there. So no matter what arises for you, know, even if it's difficult, that everything is supporting you to do this work. Everything wants you to be free. Including yourself. So don't be afraid to face whatever it is that's difficult. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.